Matthew chapter 3 jumps forward in the timeline of Jesus' life from the years surrounding his birth to the start of his adult ministry. This chapter revolves around two primary events that are linked by a conversation. The first event focuses on John the Baptist baptizing Israelites. The second event focuses on John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. The linking conversation is between John the Baptist and members of two groups of Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Both main events reference Old Testament passages, keeping with Matthew's theme of pointing backwards to underline Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Both also revolve around water, a trend that we see a lot in the Gospel accounts. Whenever Jesus and his followers get around water, something miraculous happens. Welcome back, I'm Brian, and we are currently tackling the book of Matthew, going chapter by chapter through it. If the intro didn't give it away, we've made it all the way to chapter 3. If you're reading along with us, congratulations. If not, you can find the weekly readings on our Facebook page. This week is a short chapter, so there's hope for a shorter podcast. As with our other podcasts, we're going to be breaking this one chapter into smaller bite-sized chunks to explore. The first thing you'll notice is that Jesus is no longer a young child. There's a huge timeline jump between the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, a jump from Jesus' early years to his adult life. The only story we have in between these years is at the end of Luke chapter 2, where we get a small snippet about 12-year-old Jesus and the temple in Jerusalem. God has chosen to focus the vast majority of all four Gospels on Jesus' short but purposeful adult ministry. It starts with Jesus being baptized here and ends with his resurrection from the tomb only a few years later. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, focus on John baptizing Israelites from all around Jerusalem, Judea, and the entire region. It's important to note here that John the Baptist is different from John the Disciple, who authored the Gospel according to John, and also the book of the Revelation. They are different people, and I want to make sure to point that out. When I was first reading the Bible, this tripped me up some. But John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance to the people of Israel before Jesus came on the scene, and for a little while after. It was a call to turn from their current lifestyle and reorient themselves toward a new thing. If you've never read through the Old Testament prophets, they are constantly crying out to Israel to return to God. John's message is very similar. Stop going through the motions. Stop being hypocrites. Stop just claiming to be religious because someone in your family tree is. This call is echoed verbatim by Jesus in chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John's message of transformation is found throughout Jesus' teachings. But what truly is repentance? It's more than just feeling bad or guilty about a past action. It's about having a heart that desires to turn from that mindset or behavior and turn toward a new thing. Sometimes that means taking something out of your life and then replacing that void with a new thing. In my own life, that me might mean removing arrogant or boastful habits and replacing them with grounding, humbling practices like praying or studying the Bible in worship of Jesus. The word that John the Baptist uses in chapter 3 for preaching and teaching here literally means to be a herald for someone to come. 
Usually it was referring to making a grand, grand announcement before a king's arrival. This is exactly what John the Baptist was doing, announcing the coming king. It is clear that the Old Testament anticipated someone who would come as a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah and to preach a message of his coming. Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 5 say, The voice of one who calls out, Prepare the way of Yahweh in the wilderness. Make a level highway for in the desert for our God. Verse 5 says, The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. That's Isaiah chapters 40. The last verses of the Old Testament also prophesied this event. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Jesus actually affirms that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this prophecy. We see historical evidence outside the Bible for both John the Baptist's life, but also this exact ministry of repentance. In the book The Antiquities by Josephus, we see him describe John the Baptist as a good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Interestingly, Josephus also validates, validates that John was not saying that baptism saves you, only that it's a public outward expression. Now remember, Matthew is nothing if not an Old Testament nerd, so in addition to the quoted verses, he is also using familiar vocabulary. The entrance of John the Baptist on the scene from the wilderness reminds me of Israel the nations wandering in the wilderness before entering into the promised land. And John the Baptist's appearance and clothing are even described in very similar terms to what the Old Testament prophet Elijah appeared like in 2 Kings which the ESV translation translates to, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. This sounds very similar to how John the Baptist is described here in Matthew chapter 3. John arrives on the scene and starts proclaiming this message, but what happened next? What was the response of his message? Matthew 3, 5 says that people from Jerusalem, Judea, and the whole region were coming to him to confess their sins and be baptized. There was a positive public response to this message. Again, the ancient historian Josephus backs the Bible up here. He says, Now when many others came in crowds to him, talking about John the Baptist, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words. But there was also this negative response from both Jewish and Roman leadership. He rubbed the Roman rulers wrong, which actually lands him in prison, and a few chapters from now, we'll, just, we'll hear about his beheading. According to Josephus, the Roman rulers feared the great influence John had over the people, and that he might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion. They were scared that he was going to be a rebellion inciter. The confrontation with the Jewish leadership actually comes to pass in an interesting dialogue over the next six verses, which we'll cover in just a second. Verses 3, 7 through 12 in Matthew chapter 3 highlight a conversation that happens between John the Baptist and members of two groups of Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees were separate groups with different theological and political platforms, but who both had legalistic and hypocritical tendencies. 
According to Blumberg, the Sadducees had made their peace with the Roman government, but only believed in doctrine that could be derived from the first five books of the Bible. So they only really believed in the first five books of the Bible, and they thought the Roman government wasn't absolutely terrible. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, they viewed the Roman rulers as illegitimate. But these Pharisees also deviated some from the Torah, the first five books and, and the entire Old Testament, in favor of an oral tradition that they had constructed themselves. So they kind of melded the Bible with tradition. And we see, we'll see this as a confrontation point a lot. The Jewish ruling, ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the group who would directly conspire to murder Jesus eventually, were made up mostly of representatives from these two groups, which is another underlining point between all the confrontations that we have. And as the, the story continues to grow, we need to start to feel that tension. These groups presumed their heritage as, as descendants of Abraham overrode the need for repentance and a true faith that bears fruit. Notice, how did Matthew start his gospel account? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham in lineage and in deed. Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus is greater than Abraham and came before Abraham. We see this unboxed more by the Apostle Paul in the books of Romans and Galatians. Paul says in Romans 9 verses 6 through 8, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Then he goes on in Galatians verses or chapter 3 verses 27 through 29 to say, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It ain't a family tree thing. It's a faith in he thing. And that he is Jesus. John likens the unrepentant to chaff that would burn up. The winnowing fork and threshing floor imagery is also laced with Old Testament vocabulary, referencing the consequences of remaining unrepentant. There's a lot of verses that you could choose from in the Old Testament, but I'll pick just two passages to read. Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 7, which is talking about how the Lord will not relent on Jerusalem, says, I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. And then Hosea chapter 13, verses 3 through 8, talking about the Lord's judgment on Israel, says, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when, you, when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will tear open their breasts, 
and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. So it's kind of harsh, but that's a couple times that I've quoted in Hosea already as we go through the book of Matthew. And it makes me excited for our next series when we're going to talk to the minor prophets. But these two verses are really talking about how the nation of Israel, even though it was God's people who he made covenant with, are still going to face judgment if they don't have faith in Jesus. Also notice the tension that's starting to build. Matthew 2 marked conflict that included King Herod, the Roman ruler of Judea. Matthew 3 marks conflict involving the Jewish leadership. Roman rulers, Jewish leaders, two groups that are constantly aligning themselves against Jesus. These two chapters identify the groups that will ultimately conspire to arrest, try, and execute Jesus on the cross. John calls out the Jewish leaders on their incorrect assumptions, and then he warns them that while he may offer a baptism by water for repentance, there would be someone coming next who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This dialogue between John the Baptist and the religious leaders lead directly into the next section of Matthew chapter 3, which is verses 13 through 17, and these focus on the baptism of one specific person, Jesus. Jesus has come from the region of Galilee where he grew up to John the Baptist so that he could be baptized also. Jesus entering the scene on the heels of John the Baptist's proclamation is another instance of Matthew pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, the man whose sandals John said he was not worthy to carry. Jesus' response that his baptism would fulfill all righteousness is a phrase described by Blumberg as to complete everything that forms part of a right relationship of obedience to God. We see John the Baptist being really hesitant to baptize Jesus. Remember, John knows that Jesus is the Messiah, is God in the flesh. John's whole ministry was to call people to return to God. Now here was Jesus, fully God, standing in front of him. No wonder John wanted a timeout. Unlike the Israelites, Jesus did not and would not have any sin to confess, yet he displayed full obedience to God the Father by being baptized to initiate his earthly ministry. And he was obedient to the point of death on the cross at the end of his earthly ministry. The Israelites came out of Egypt into the promised land and failed to be obedient to God. In contrast, here Jesus was, coming out of Egypt, offering himself to baptism, and executing perfect obedience to God the Father. Notice that Matthew doesn't describe Jesus' baptism itself, but what happened as Jesus emerged from the water, all four Gospels describe. That the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended like a dove on Jesus. This is immediately followed by God the Father announcing that this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, pointing back to the Old Testament passages about the new and greater David in Psalm 2 and the Lord's chosen suffering servant in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I delight, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the whole earth. In the baptism of Jesus, 
we also see the Trinity fully on display. God the Father, who is well pleased with God the Son, who is descended upon by God the Spirit. Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his adult ministry, which plays out over the next 25 chapters of Matthew. We are starting to see the plot thicken around the Messiah, and the next episode we will see him resist the temptations of the devil and then start to publicly teach. Next episode also sets the table for maybe the most well-known teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in chapter 5. If you're not already, please find and follow us on Facebook and YouTube to stay up to date on all the latest postings. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses are from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.